0: Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, ww.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by doc to doc the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. doc to doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past, and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. docs personal loan options at doc dot slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. Raihan Faruqi, a uh, physician and a digital health entrepreneur and advisor. So Raihan, thanks so much for joining us, really appreciate it thanks so much for having me here awesome awesome so i gave you a very brief intro maybe give us a little bit of background on yourself you know obviously you, you trained as a physician so maybe give us a little background on that like kind of your early clinical career and then really how that's evolved into all the interesting things you've done recently
1: yeah so i worked in health tech and healthcare now for about a decade i knew i wanted to go to medical school become a physician I also took several MBA classes when I was an undergrad at Cornell. It was very different than a lot of my peers. Um, I had friends who now work in tech, in entrepreneurship, in investment banking, in finance. And that really inspired me to think very broadly on how both technology and other macroeconomic trends would affect the healthcare industry. Um, I remember taking classes, um, even as an undergrad, in healthcare policy, healthcare administration, understanding that how the money flows, the business of healthcare, whether it was payers, how providers were owned, um how the government is involved, that would be really important. So I spent a lot of my time just reading, meeting really cool folks and uh, always had the vision for myself of practicing for a little and then seeing what would happen, which is not that visionary <laughs> if you think about it. So people told me I was crazy that I that I was throwing away my career and that I was throwing away my degree and uh, I, I what I knew though is that um, technology was going to be critical in actually upending and disrupting. Um, the space that I was training in, but I, I was not quite sure how. And I also knew that the macroeconomic forces at play um, would continue to shape the field in ways that a lot of my peers were not thinking through. So I knew those two things to be true, um, even as a medical student. And uh, I've always had a entrepreneurial bug. Um, always, you know, I'm, I was always one of those folks who, you know, I would sell stuff on eBay. I'd sell stuff. You know, at a garage sale, and uh, I, I always kind of had that knack of being a salesperson and um, knew that I, I had a way of operating um, that was very different from my core competencies as, as a clinician. Um, so I knew that in some sense, I wanted to kind of tease out that muscle, build that muscle, but didn't really know in my career what that would be. I thought, hey, maybe I'll work for the government, maybe I'll work in biotech, maybe I'll go work for a big pharma. Um, But I knew there was going to be a second arc of my career uh, that was going to be different than just either working at a clinic, working at a hospital. Um, It was going to be that something else.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Thanks for giving us that background. I'm curious, do you think, you know, because people leave clinical medicine in various stages, you know, some people, people transition, you know, while they're in med school or right after med school and don't go to residency. I guess, what was that, like, are you glad you you at least, you know, got trained, did some practice a little bit? Do you feel like that gave you more perspective than just, you know, going right out of med school, if you will? Yeah,
1: yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think some level of either residency training, um, some level of being a clinician who actually takes care of patients is really valuable uh, in this space. Where, again, you kind of have that experience of understanding how just kind of being a doctor right from A to Z. Um, now, again, you know, there's lots of clinicians. Again, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of ER doctors in in digital health. There's a lot of radiologists in digital health. Um, there's very interesting archetypes of specialists who, because of their day to day workflow, um, because of the way that their kind of corporate entities own their, their schedules, they actually have more free time to be able to pursue some pursuits versus other folks who just, they're not able to. So that's also the other interesting angle where there's a reason why we see a certain type of specialist in digital health um, versus other, other archetypes. Um, so I think there's there's a part of, I think the clinical training, there's a part of the, the reality of the day-to-day workload. And then I think the other value is um, I can really understanding what the day-to-day demands of patients, of family members, and what frontline staff is like. Um, I think obviously physicians are only one type of clinician. I come from a healthcare family. I have sisters who are therapists. My dad is a retired respiratory therapist. I have uncles, cousins, and nephews who are you know, nurses and pharmacists and dentists. So there are lots of types of healthcare providers that are not doctors. And if you've worked in a clinical setting and you've been able to work with a pharmacist on the floors, you've been able to work with a nurse, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, just that experience alone will give you really tangible experience on how to execute really anything. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so, and that I think is pretty invaluable for for for
0: clinicians to have. Yeah, no, that makes a sense. I mean, you know, the end user firsthand, um, you know, that that experience, you know, our residency years kind of stick with us. You know, forever it's it's something that you know both the the learning curve and the and the hour and workload but then also those just those patient experiences like you talked about and then yeah i think you really hit a critical point there like it's not the physicians aren't the only players here you know there's there's it takes it really healthcare's evolved to where there's a whole team involved and i'm sure we'll get into that more when we talk about your, the company you're working at right now but like i think understanding their role how they play in is is really key So I think maybe tell us a little bit about like that transition. Like you said, people thought you were crazy when you kind of moved on to, you know, was this something you kind of did some advisor stuff and and still practiced and then kind of dipped your toes or did you, like how did, how was that transition for you?
1: Yeah, I I would say there was some planned chaos. (laughs) if, If I looked back where I was strategic in the sense of, I needed to, to know companies, founders, mentors. So I was very active. Um, I live in New York City. We have a very active digital health scene here, but that was not always the case, right? 10, 20 years ago. Uh, and I think when I was kind of training early 2010s, um, there was some startups, <laughs> there were some people, um, but it was not like how it is a decade, um, a decade in the future. But I I think for me, the first thing was like, I need to find mentors. I need to find people who are two, five, 10 years ahead of me. So I would scour LinkedIn. I would ask friends of mine for introductions. And there was a couple of folks who either had an MD MBA or they consulted for a startup or they had left clinical medicine full time. And a lot of their advice to me was really critical uh, in my formative years. Um, I try to give back as often as possible. I I get DMs now from people all the time with very similar questions that I was asking, right um, about a decade ago. And so I think that's still there, right? It's like finding people, finding mentors, hearing their stories, but then very quickly learning like okay, like there's various archetypes here. Um, so what what could I do? Who could I become? And I very quickly learned in medical school, when I actually interned at a health tech startup as a third-year student, that networks are very powerful. Um, I oftentimes say, network is net worth, and who you know, being able to leverage your personal networks and being able to make the ask uh, is critically important, again, for clinicians who typically have not flexed that muscle. Maybe the last time was interviewing for a residency or fellowship, right, if they ever did. Um, so that was critically important, but also just getting really good at meeting people, right? That is a skill, right? Being able to walk up to somebody cold at a happy hour, at a conference, at a panel, being like, I know who you are and I have a reason why I want to meet you and hi, hello, my name is, and getting their information, getting their email, following up. Um, so that's a skill that I learned um, when I was younger and that's that's proved me really well to, to this point. So I did that, you know, I, I tried to, you know attend events in New York City. I showed up to events. I met people. Um I took down their contact information and you know X led to Y led to Z. And I was basically introduced by a friend of mine who was a CEO of a cybersecurity startup, not a health tech startup, right? Different industry, different space. But he's like, hey Rihan, like I know someone, she's a friend of mine. We went to high school together. She runs this health tech startup in the metagenomics diagnostics space. They're looking for somebody like you, maybe like, let me just connect you to her. I'm like, sure. That sounds awesome. And three phone calls later, she hires me as an intern. Right? So if you look back, like a little accidental, but not so accidental, because I kind of put myself in that position to action that opportunity, if that makes sense. So I oftentimes advise that where, again, if you spread yourself pretty wide, if you're having a bunch of conversations, but you're very structured in your approach of I am looking for an opportunity in, I am looking for an angle in here. I am, this is what I can do. Like after a certain number of at bats, like you're going to get a shot. Right. Um, and I, so I kind of had the inkling that was going to be the case, but, uh, but, but yeah, you know, I I took that intro and I converted it into an internship as a medical student.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's most med students are just trying to survive their, you know, step exams and clinical rotations and all that. That's, that's really yeah. cool, and it, that's uh, that's amazing. You got that as like so early in your career. I feel like a lot of a lot of people yeah. never get that, or even maybe get it yeah. much later.
1: Yeah, and it's definitely unique. You know, I I want to like I was the one in one hundred student, right? I mean, the vast majority of my peers did not have the vision that I had. So I think that's really important. Where. I knew, and I, I have. I also have a background in academic research. I used to work at a multiple sclerosis um, research center before medical school. i published several abstracts and papers, and so I think there were a lot of my colleagues who were like, like I got to get published, right? <laughs> like, so there was a lot of a lot of those folks, and then there was just a lot of folks who were very focused on their clinical career. I was, but I was also focused on something else. So I think that's very, very unique at the time. I don't, I can't name a single classmate who had a vision like I did, right? Like I would be tracking the merger and acquisitions in the New York city hospital market. People were like, why are you doing that? <laughs> I was like, well, I think it's important, <laughs> right? Like we're like, are, are these programs gonna exist? And so again, I think I was very much the, the, the odd person out where I think to your point people were very focused on board review and step exams. And again, I was too, but it was not the only thing that was driving me. Right. So, you know, when I had, you know, some off time or, you know, when I was in a rotation, that was a little bit easier. um, You know, when I had some time in between rotations, like I was like, I want to do something that fills the, the gap or fills the time. And again, like I would work nights, I would work weekends, but because but because I kind of knew that this was going to be my my career in some shape and form, but I, I didn't really know how it would pan out. So that's why I took the time. I took the time. Um, I did this three-month internship and the company ended up hiring me. Um, fast forward a couple of years, they raised a round of funding. The CEO remembered me like really out of the blue. She just emailed me back and she's like, Raihan, you did some good work for us. We've now got some money. We have a role. Again, network and just
0: doing good work. And
1: I was like, all right
0: like, let's go. Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. That's really cool how that kind of came full circle like that too. Yeah. So yeah, I guess, tell me about how, you know, then you, this kind of obviously, you know, one thing leads to another, I imagine it's kind of almost a snowball effect in some ways. Um, and maybe it wasn't that didn't feel that way at the time, but maybe when looking back, I guess, (laughs) I guess, uh, how did you make that like full? So like, it sounded like you were doing, you know, from reading your background, you've done and hearing you Uh, Discuss some of it, like you've done numerous things at like one time. Like how, I guess, maybe give us a little bit like the timeline, how like what these roles were and how they evolved for you. Yeah, yeah. I think for me initially, what
1: I realized was that, you know, if I want to be a chief medical officer in a decade, right? What else do I have to learn that I don't currently know? And what I knew is that I have to understand sales strategy, right? There's like kind of that growth commercial hat there was another part of it at startups where again you're building you're building something that doesn't exist so i knew that i had to flex some type of muscle on the product and engineering side didn't mean i had to learn how to code i think a lot of people are like well i'm not a coder like i can't work in tech and i think again that that reflects a, a little bit of a misunderstanding of just how companies operate right like you have different departments but it really helps to be knowledgeable and well versed of how other people a CTO, a head of product, a head of software engineering, a, a lead develop. like who are these people? What do they do? What are their backgrounds? What are their trainings? What's their language? I knew that I had to have that understanding, right? That would be really helpful to me. Um, so that was really my initial kind of task. It's like, all right, um, sure, I could be a clinician. But that was also not my vision. Like I just, I did not want to be a only a provider at a startup. If that made sense, like I was, I was looking beyond that. You know, I want. I, ideally, it's a position where I'm in leadership, I'm in management, or in potentially I'm even part of the C suite. Um, and what I now know that I did not know back then was like, if you're going to be a C, every C has a financial consideration, right? How are you moving forward the business? It's the capital B business. So. That was the initial inkling. It's like I need to learn sales. (laughs) I need to learn how to sell something. Because again, I had kind of had that experience. Again, as I've mentioned, I I took several classes at at the Cornell Johnson School, which is the MBA program at Cornell. Um, I sat in as an undergrad with first-year MBA students, um, and I learned a ton just at at my at my time as an undergrad. And now, fast forward. Now I'm working at a company. I'm hired as a business development associate. It's like, look, help us do market research. Um, Help us prospect, build a bunch of leads where we could potentially sell into, you know, help us think through various um, kind of outreach campaigns, help us think through product messaging. Again, I'd never done any of these things before, but I'm like, all right, I can figure it out, right? Let me study other companies in our space. Um, Let me look at what really good collateral looks like. Um, I re- I understood that writing as a skill was going to be very important in this space. Um, I can write great care plans. Why can't I write up a great marketing fly- flyer, right? So really, it was also kind of translating a lot of my skills as a clinician um, into other um, core competencies. Um,
0: so yeah, I-, I hope that kind of helps. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I remember someone said to me once, like, you you need to realize like your degree is much more valuable than you even realize, like. It, you know, it gives you obviously the ability to practice, but it gives you that insight to like, and I mean, as physicians, most of us are pretty good learners. Like you yeah, had kind of had to be, yeah. to get, get in and get through med school. So yeah. I think, I feel yeah. like, especially like, it sounds like from, you know, you did this very well was kind of picking up new skills and learning on the fly, which honestly, a lot yeah. of residency is, is you yeah. know, doing that. So Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I, I mean, I fondly look back at residency and I think it's, it's very similar to a very early stage health tech startup where you're coming in fresh face, like you really know nothing, right? You've got a lot of like theoretical knowledge in your head, but you haven't done anything with your hands. And that's really what a lot of health tech startups are when they're freshly funded or when they're early, like you're an idea on paper, right? Cool, now go do something. And I think to your point, it is that capacity to continuously learn, which really, which I always loved. Like Like I will, it's learning anything, having a really good process for learning i remember when i was a medical student um i would mentor other students and like here's how to be a good learner (laughs) right here's how to be like so it was not about physiology right or cardiac pharmacology it was like no you need to understand that as a lifelong clinician you're always going to be learning right um So I think that is a skill that I I learned to hone very, very early on. There's going to be a ton of information. I'm not going to know. How do I read it? How do I understand it? How do I test myself? Right. Um, And that's that's just a good med student and resident. Right. Um, But I think that translates very well to a lot of early stage startups where you're dealing with a lot of unknowns and the only known you're going to have is your capacity to learn, but also your capacity to learn from your mistakes, And that's a good residency corollary as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Like in your first couple, you're just making a ton of mistakes, right? And um, but it's understanding like I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, but I'm going to learn from those mistakes, right? Um, And that that is so tangential to what happens, where really it's it's I call it a science, right? Uh, and, And as a as somebody who used to work in the wet lab running a lot of experiments, that's really all it is, like. Either it's going to be your sales and marketing team or your product engineering team, Like you are constantly running experiments when you're early. You are just, you're A-B testing, you're figuring out, does this thing work, right? And the majority of the time, the answer is no, it <laughs> does not work, but you're collecting data. You're collecting a ton of data and you're actioning upon that data, but we're looking for that thing that does work. But what's the most important thing is actually the design of the experiments. That's the process that is oftentimes missed by some folks on the outside where you know, we're not actually looking for like sure you're, you're looking for the million dollar outcome, but we're actually looking for this the million dollar process, right? <laughs> so when you're early, it's actually building a lot of those processes, building those iterative experiments, and you're just doing those at hyper velocity and hyper speed, um, and that's the part that I found to be really cool, right?
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think that. That's the exciting thing about the startups. It's like, it's this new thing. You're not, you know, you obviously have a vision, but you really don't know like where it's, you know, where right. it could be even six months from now. That's changed, as exactly. you know very well, it changes so fast. Correct. Uh, um, Very exciting. I think I wanted to, I want to segue a little bit, talk about what you're doing now at Guaranteed. Like, I guess one, mm-hmm. maybe give us kind of a 30,000 foot overview of like what the company is, what it's doing, what kind of stage it's at. And then, you know, tell us how you got involved in that.
1: Yeah. So it's a really interesting story. Uh, I can kind of start during the pandemic. So like many of your listeners, I got COVID, but I actually was that initial 5 to 10% of COVID patient who was very like seriously ill. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I had a 103, 104 fever for about seven or eight days, sickest I've ever been in my life. And on day eight, I was went to the ER. I couldn't breathe, and it it was an experience that I will always remember. And eventually, right when you when you get COVID, everybody in your home gets it, right? And um, so both my parents got it from me. My grandmother got it from me. Like everybody got it from me. And I remember really clearly my grandmother's experience. I was okay. I got better. My parents were okay. They also got better. My grandmother, she's 75, breast cancer survivor, kidney failure. She's on hemodialysis three times a week, doesn't speak English. She's Medicare, Medicaid. And she was in the hospital for about six weeks. She was in the ICU on a vent for 10 days and she survived, which wow. is still miracle to this That's day. That's amazing. Wow. And- I'm sure if a lot of us remember, like patients like this were dying every day, right? And they wanted to discharge her to a short-term rehab facility. And we said, no, (laughs) you're going to discharge her to home. And I was living with my family at the time. My dad at the time was still a practicing respiratory therapist at one of the top um, level one trauma centers in Northern New Jersey. One sister is a speech therapist, another sister is an occupational therapist. And I have several cousins who are therapists, clinicians, dentists, pharmacists, you name it. It's like, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and we built a rehab facility for her in the basement of our house. And we rehabbed her back to health. And cause I have a background in health tech and I always knew the home is an alternative site where people can do very well. And it, it was pretty incredible. Um, what we did with her. But if I also take a step back, if my grandmother had died, we were not prepared for her death. That would have been a very bad death. Even a family like ours that was educated, that was healthcare, we, we did not have advanced care planning set up you know, her last will, her her healthcare proxies, even though my mother was designated as her proxy, like we didn't talk about things that we should have talked about, right? DNR, DNI, peg tube, like all of these things, like we're just we're not discussed as a family. And we really just were not prepared for that moment. So that experience really always stuck with me. Um And I also remember as as a clinician, really enjoyed speaking with patients who had only a few days or a few weeks left. And that's maybe a weird thing to say. And I think why that's weird for some people is they don't quite understand when you're in that moment and you have a terminal illness like end-stage cancer, end-stage dementia, heart failure or lung failure, or another terminal disease like ALS, for example, in those last moments where really it's quality of life, spending time with your friends and family, what you really appreciate is the things that people say. (laughs) And I remember as a clinician, as a student, as a resident, um, I was always the person who would round back, whether it was after, you know, kind of you know, the main team would round, the specialists would round, I would always go back, Um, I would sit with the patients, I would sit with the family. I remember doing home visits um, during a a, a geriatrics, um, you know, uh, rotation in my fourth year. And I I would always spend a lot of time with the family. I'm I'm a family guy in real life. And as a clip, I was always a family person. And I really enjoyed those moments. Because what I remember people telling me was, you know, uh, I don't wish I had more money. You know, I don't wish uh, I had this job. I just wish I had more time with people in my life. I wish I had more time uh, to rectify the broken hearts. I wish I had and that to me was like, wow, like that is life. (laughs) That is the real. So I always knew in some way I wanted to come back to that space. I didn't know how I didn't know how. But you know, when when guaranteed as a very young company, um, when they were looking for 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 folks to bring on, um I, I was approached by somebody um who was an investor in the pre seed round and I was exploring a newer role. And when I was introduced to the company, when I was introduced to Jessica McGlory, the founder and the CEO, I was really blown away by how thoughtful the company was in terms of modernizing the end of life care experience and kind of reflecting on my own personal experience with COVID, my grandmother's experience with the disease, my own like previous experiences working in elder tech, previous to Guaranteed, I was a commercial medical director at Perry Health. Um, I was very early on at the company, one of the first 10 full-time hires and uh, I joined the company when they had just closed a seed round. Um, I left right after they had closed a series A. Um, I was one of the first seven or eight hires. We were about 40 after I left. So kind of seeing that scale. And um, we were working with elderly diabetes patients across the country. And we were leveraging remote patient monitoring. We would ship 4G-enabled finger stick glucometers, blood pressure cuffs, and weight scales. They had a great unboxing experience. There was no app. They would use these devices. The data would ping up through the nearest cell phone tower, and it would come into an EMR that our team built, and we had dietitians and nurses who would then call and text our patients. That was the workflow, right? Simple, elegant. We had high engagement. We had great outcomes with A1C and decreased hospitalizations and so on and so forth. But I was working with elderly patients. These were all Medicare eligible patients, 67, 72, 83, polychronic polypharmacy, right? The hardest patients to deal with. And people said, oh, well, you you know, like they're not tech savvy. And that was not true, (laughs) right? It was just not true. I mean, we found these folks would text with their nieces and nephews, with their grandsons, like they... They knew how to text um, and they understood that, okay, um, I can use a device just like I use any other device, but we we made it, but it was so it was easy for them to use. So, like We knew apps could be difficult. We saw the experience of telemedicine during the pandemic, right? So it's like, oh, we just have to design something that is user-friendly. Like, so that was kind of tap, thinking about my experience there, working with that patient population, understanding that okay what's going to happen after that as populations are aging and they're going to die and we're facing this medicare tsunami um i was aware again kind of being very plugged into the health tech space that there really was no venture backed startup in the end of life care space in in this um in this fashion that was really owning what the best hospice care could look like um so when i saw all of that and also when the, when, I, when i heard jessica's story of being a caregiver for her father who had several heart attacks he had acute heart failure and she first heard the word hospice when he was dying she actually didn't even know he was dying right and again kind of hearing her experience being the caregiver being handed a piece of paper being like all right well now go figure it out um and having her father die in-home hospice, having that kind of way with her for several years, she does not come historically from a healthcare background. Um, You know, she has a background in digital marketing, digital product. She had consulted for some direct-to-consumer health tech startups like Roe, for some of the earlier telemedicine uh, uh, companies, but really like that was not her life's vision, like I'm going to start a healthcare company, her motivation was her dad, like guaranteed is, is an ode is her, um, really, it's her expression of love. It's her expression of um, making a difference. So when I heard that story, um, it, it really touched me personally. But I also knew that this was somebody who was going to work on this problem day and night. Right? So finding folks who are really mission driven because it's coming from their own personal experience and knowing like that makes an incredible founder profile, (laughs) right? Like that is going to make investors pay attention when they listen to her. Um, so I, I kind of knew that, Hey, like this is, this is somebody who I want to work with. This is somebody who I want to work for, and this is something that I want to help build. And again, in an area in health tech previously that has been unexplored, it's white space. Um, that is an area that I was actively, you know, searching for. Um, so, kind of hearing her story, you know, being approached by by contacts of mine who had already invested in the company. Um, that, that's what brought me to, to to Guaranteed.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, thank you for giving us that that background and that that overview. I think. It's really inspiring. And I think that, you know, when you have that personal mission that you're on, whether it's, you know, um, you know, a family member or someone close to you that, that went through something or, or yourself, you know, it always gives you that extra motivation to go the extra mile. Because as you know, like with anything, startups are, it's a long, long road. And, you know, you got to have, you got to have something driving you other than, you know, exiting or making money or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So my question is, I guess, so what what stage are you guys at now? Like, where, where yeah. what's your what's your offering? What stage are you at? I, I know, like you said, you've yeah. ra- you raised you know venture funding and that, but I guess, what kind of you know stage are you at? What, what's your your product offering?
1: Yeah, so so we've raised a little bit less than ten million dollars um, in the last year and a half. Um, so we have raised both a pre-seed round of funding and a seed round of funding. So we are a seed stage startup, and we are currently live and operational in the state of California, um, specifically in the Los Angeles area. We cover five counties. Um, we also uh, are hoping to be up and running in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. So we're hoping to be bicoastal by the end of the year and kind of guaranteed health um, as our corporate entity. Our first business line is guaranteed hospice. So you know, we're not a hospice company, we're a tech startup. And as a tech startup, what we've realized is that understanding that our population is rapidly aging and people are dying because of that. But people kind of understanding the experience of the pandemic also want care delivered to them, personalized where they are. And for a lot of people, that's the home. So understanding that the home as a site of care and understanding that as patients age at home, what are the types of services that we could provide? So, but we are starting with with hospice. And the idea is how do we create these really beautiful end of life care experiences for dying and grieving people in the home that is customized to their exact needs? It's kind of our first uh, foray, but along with that, is working to change the culture around death and make dying more inclusive. And the second part is really powerful. Most every team member, if you look at our LinkedIns, says we should probably talk about death. And that's on design, that's on purpose. And I can't tell you how many people send me a DM, like, oh, I'm so glad you're talking about this. <laughs> so it's just, again, starting the conversation whether it's through virtual panels, it's through community events, it's working with caregivers, understanding that we are all going to die, that death is guaranteed. And that is where the name of our company comes from. But what is not guaranteed is a really great death, is a great end of life care experience. So to start with that, guaranteed hospice. We are a provider. We provide comprehensive hospice care services. We have palliative trained nurses, social workers, care managers, chaplains, really your interdisciplinary team that comes into the home and provides great hospice care, point blank. The technology angle of this, which is very different from every other hospice provider agency, is understanding that hospice was once a, actually a very innovative care model. It's one of the original value-based care entities that was created in the mid-80s. Medicare fee-for-service hospice is actually capitated around $200 per patient per day. problem is that a lot of the day-to-day operations has not had updating (laughs) since then. So that is really where our focus is, is again, as as a tech startup, where we have product and engineering resources internally, how do we improve the experience of patients, of family caregivers, and of our providers? So we have these three pillars. And if we can start with our patients, what we've realized, again, is really in studying the best hospices and studying health tech companies that are in the home and can deliver care in the home. There's really a few areas that we've realized um, where we can kind of move this industry forward. So the first thing really is 24/7 connectivity. And really what that means is, can we have an intelligent care model where we can meet patients where they're at? So if patients are cognitively intact, or if they're not cognitively intact, right? Hospice, typically it's patients who have cancer, who have dementia, who have heart failure, lung failure. Those are kind of the big four terminal diagnoses. So understanding like, what is the capacity of our patients to be able to engage with their care? That could just be in person, but that could also be through a virtual modality. When we look at, family and caregivers. There's a lot that happens in person, there's a lot that happens virtually, where those family and caregivers could be empowered, they could be even trained, and potentially upskilled. So when we look at kind of patients, when we look at family caregivers, what we've realized is that 24-7 connection to care teams does not exist. People come into the home and then they leave And both the patient and the family have no idea what's happening for most of the time. So kind of the solution for that is utilizing SMS text and utilizing asynchronous and synchronous telemedicine where we are not replacing in-person care because we have a hybrid care model. We are both in-person and virtual. So it's not about replacing the in-person care. It's about augmenting that So there is actually round-the-clock support because in hospice, your patients can die at any time. It could be days, it could be weeks, or it could be months. And typically what we see in hospice is, well, all right, it's three o'clock in the morning. Something is happening with mom. We are freaking out. We call 911, and now the patient is in the ER. That is a bad outcome for everyone and what we've what we've realized is the way that you're going to prevent that outcome is if you're just doing really good communication and you have someone at all times to reach out to and that's the part where now technology can play a role right you know we are exploring chatbots we are exploring generative ai we are exploring just really good customer service <laughs> right um because that is where a lot of that 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 connectivity layer is missing at a lot of hospices a lot of hospices will have a 24 7 nurse line now that is one solution but is that a scalable solution the biggest problem in healthcare right now is the workforce it is really difficult to attract clinicians doctors nurses and therapists and it's really hard to retain them right yeah Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so i mentioned provider experience why are we as a tech startup, building and investing in platforms that optimize for provider experience. Well, because it's for every burned out clinician who hates doing this, who hates typing on a clunky EMR, who really hates coding and billing, and who understands that administrative burden, historically in the last 20 years, has taken away from direct patient care. Because we're hiring nurses, we're hiring social workers. and. We know that for us to be a place that people wanna work at, that we have to build tools that free them from doing the things they do not wanna do, <laughs> right? <laughs> so understanding like, what does the best hospice EMR look like? What does the base provider communication portal look like? What is the best documentation experience look like, right? So investing in those resources, building out those products. So again, we can have our providers communicate with each other really well how can we take slack like ui and bring that to provider communication wouldn't that be nice <laughs> right um you know why are people typing you know how can we do modular documentation how can we do you know uh, suggested text how can we build out templates how are we thinking about voice to text again how are we studying other industries, other specialties that have advanced. How can we bring that to this space where people are still pen and paper? There's still a ton of forms, (laughs) It is healthcare. How can we digitize, how can we automate and how can we bring efficiency, right? Um, And how can we have our product folks, our engineers, folks who are working on the product size, build together with our social workers, with our palliative care doctors and with our nurses, because that's where that's where the magic happens. Right. Um, So that for us is really, really exciting. uh, Because we believe that again, like that type of ethos, building really great provider experience um, will serve us really well um, in in the long run.
0: Yeah, no, that's really innovative. I mean, I think Doing good hospice care at at home, I think, you know, is probably always, you know, the most ideal, you know, I mean, as an interventional radiology trainee, you know, it, I didn't realize this until I really got into residencies. We do a lot of procedures for patients going to hospice or that are like at the end of life, you know, for a variety of reasons. One, to, you know, for obviously the most obvious one is like interventional pain or to reduce pain, but a lot of them are to keep people out of the hospital. So like exactly what you described, like keeping people out of the hospital is I always feel so bad for patients when they're essentially dying in the hospital. Like it's like what, you know, it's that just such yeah. a non-ideal. I mean, obviously there's times if you're in the ICU or something like that, but even yeah. even in some of those cases, I feel like, I mean, yeah. you, you would know better than me cause you're in the space, but like, I think, yeah. you know, optimize, you know, I think what you guys are doing is very noble because like trying to optimize that for both the person and the family. I mean, as a family, you don't want to be ideally in the hospital with your loved one when they're yeah. passing.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you're you're an expert here as well. I mean, it's not that I'm an expert. I think it's it's more of the reality that 80% of people when surveyed want to die at home. Only 25% of people do. So again, how do we, now wherever that That's a home staggering
0: be, percentage. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but- <laughs> Yeah,
1: it, it, it's a staggering, but there's reasons why that happened. And so, but wherever home might be. So it could be like a residential home, but that home could also be a facility. It could be a skilled nursing facility, a nursing home, right? In lay terms, it could be an assisted living facility. Um, It could even be in a, um, you know, independent living facility, right? Because how we define home is also evolving very rapidly. Again, as folks above the age of 65 are now thinking like, what does the last quarter of my life look like? Where do I want to age and die, (laughs) right? (laughs) And I think the pandemic showed us that I want to do that at home. I do not want to do that in an ICU. But what happens is right now, 60% of patients die in the ICU.
0: Wow. That's crazy.
1: And 20% of Medicare spending happens in the last year of life.
0: Wow. Yeah, no, I believe it. I mean, all these, especially in the ICU, all these measures, all these things, all these tests, all this I- imaging, all this stuff done. I mean, we do I I couldn't even tell you how many diagnostic studies I read on patients that. I mean, you always. I mean, look, you always take it seriously. You always read it, but you, always, you party always has to wonder: like, is this really indicated? Is this really like, you know, needed right it, now? Is, you this, know? <laughs> is this really necessary? Is this yeah. really necessary?
1: And to be quite honest, and that's where again the business of healthcare comes into place, because someone's waste is someone's revenue, right? Yeah, that's, that's very is true. Is that, a that. Good, is that is that a good outcome for all parties involved? And again, that is what I'm saying is the cultural conversation around death and dying, right? Like we are not saying you should elect hospice. That is not what we are saying. What we are saying is that at a certain point, when are we thinking about the end, right? In the hospital, discharge planning happens on day one. Well, death planning should probably also happen for a very particular type of patient who has a very particular set of diagnoses because we know what the end is going to look like, right? Should we not not be planning that on day one? And when the time is ready, when we think about what can happen at home, you can have at-home palliative care, you can have at-home geriatrics, you can have at-home primary care, right? So if you are someone who is above the age of 65 and you might be PACE eligible, you might be eligible for various programs, right? But you are really sick, Right, you have seven chronic conditions. You're on 13 medications. Like, you know, there is a we have a lot of data that shows like those people again, not everybody, but a vast majority of them. We actually know what the end looks like, right? And it is not a good end, right? For that vast majority of folks. So that is that is kind of the ethos of I think where our company is. Where again, how do we think about the end at the very beginning? And who should be doing that? Is that palliative? Is that geriatrics? Is that internal medicine? Is that cardiology, right? There are a lot of specialty and we see a lot of these patients, they get lost, right? They're frequent flyers, right? And it's a terrible term, but it's true. It's used pejoratively on the, you know, in the in the ER departments where like, we just saw this patient here last month or three months ago, then they're not getting any better. And is it, are they really going to meaningfully improve from this $50,000 intervention? Like what quality of life are we actually giving? Or should we really be thinking about palliative care, about pain management, about symptom reduction? And should we really be asking them what they want, right? What are their wishes, right? What do they really want, right? Um, So I think that is, I think also kind of the ethos where again, on one side, we've had incredible advances in cancer diagnostics and cancer therapeutics. Incredible. At the same time, we're also seeing young black men like Chadwick Boseman and Black Panther die of colorectal cancer.
0: Yeah, it's crazy.
1: Like they're both true, right? We are seeing younger and younger people that are getting diagnosed and dying with breast cancer and pancreatic cancer and stomach cancer. Right. So, like, cancer is not going away, and more people are getting it. So again, like when should we be doing advanced care planning for cancer patients, right? Yeah. And, and it might not be a right answer, but we do know that, again, for certain types of cancers that are pretty unpredictable or that are more terminal, that discussion needs to be had, right? And I think that is where we're trying to kind of find our footing, um, whether it's Medicare Advantage plans, you know, whether it's geriatrics, it's palliative. Again, when does a hospice consult. When should that end of life care planning consult happen? Um, When do we, um, you know, so we're piloting something called the family admission. You admit the patient, but you also admit the family member. Sure. And they now get their own plan of care. It's caring for the caregiver because in hospice, the family member does so much in the home. So we look at the family member in actually two different ways. They're a patient that should be cared for. Holistically, medical, mental health, wellness, spiritual, like an entire plan of care. At the same time, how do we enable that family member to practice at the top of their license? They're a member of the care team.
0: That's, that's amazing. That's that's a really, you know, because a lot of this falls on the family. I mean, sure, we take care of them in the hospital. We do, you know, whatever we need to do to, to get them on their way. But then at the end of the day, like the, the family's the one dealing with this. And like you said, and I, I can see it from, you know, my mother took care of my her elderly parents, you know, at the end of their lives, they both 97 and 95 and they were otherwise pretty healthy, but you get that old, like, you know, you can't move, you can't see, like it's, it's a huge burden. I, I don't, and these are people that were born in, you know, 1917, they never thought they'd they'd live <laughs> that, you know, that long. And so they didn't think about, you know, and I think it's, you make an interesting point because now. You know, people are living, I mean, most people's, you know, obviously things happen, but you should assume you're going to live pretty long. And these are things you should think about, you know, sooner rather than later.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, people are living longer, um, but people are also living with chronic disease. Sure. Right, So there's a really high degree of disability. There's a really high degree of morbidity. Um, and this is what's different than in decades before where people would just die <laughs> right, acutely, but now they're living long, but they're really sick. So mm-hmm. they have serious illness. And so understanding like, that population of frail elderly, that's seriously ill, there's actually a lot of innovation in this space, as you can imagine from payers who are motivated keeping those patients out of the hospital, being able to provide care at home from providers who are also trying to understand how can we diversify sites of care? How can we diversify revenue opportunities, right? So there's a lot of movement, again, post pandemic, understanding that the home is a site of care Um, and it's not a a site of care for everyone, but it is definitely a site of care. But how do you enable data, infrastructure family there's a lot of things that you have to get into place i mean you know we what i always tell people is like we provide people and stuff into the home well there's a lot of stuff from supplies to medication to dme like it is logistically complex in 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 doing that and um, but so we're seeing a lot of inversion of care where again you are not going to provider provider is now coming to you we've seen models like hospital at home We've seen models again, like PACE. And I, I think these are programs of the present and of the future um, where again, where I see federal government, I see the biggest payers and pay in the country. I see venture backed startups. And there's a lot of movement again, of enabling, again, like these extender models and bringing things into the home because that's really the only capacity where we're gonna be able to service, service every patient that needs something. Right? We do not have enough brick and mortar capacity, as currently constituted, especially in rural areas. If we expand into health equity, right? Rural hospitals are closing. Rural clinics are closing. What happens to patients there? Right. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a real there's there's this reality that we are that we are facing very quickly. One in five people in this country will be Medicare eligible by 2030. That's crazy. Wow. That's not a far. Time away. No, right? like we are a rapidly aging country, but that also means that the aging and dying space is massive in terms of innovation. It will be. It is a massive economic opportunity for newer companies to be born, for us to really understand as a society. Like this is the new opportunity, right? <laughs> um. So, so that what that is what gets me excited. You know, every single day you know, understanding that there is novelty like family admission, you know, there is novelty like bereavement, right? Um, uh, Hospice does not end when someone dies. People grieve, right? So what does a lifetime bereavement membership look like? Mm -hmm. Right? Um, How do we build a better relationship with grief, right? Um, You know, bereavement is is a benefit of uh, of medicare but what happens after that 13 months right so again can we leverage on demand multimedia resource libraries you know sms text based workflows you know auto generated care pathways leveraging llms and generative ai again can we leverage these different tools and modalities that now exist that we did not previously have 2 5 10 years ago right we are very excited that there's a new dawn of technology that we can now deploy. But again, it's really not about the tech. Tech is cool. People have to use it, and we have to prove that it actually works. That are we, you know, do we have great clinical outcomes? Do we have high family and patient satisfaction? When we think about those satisfaction scores, are we doing good cost control are we actually keeping patients out of the hospital so that onus is on us right can we actually prove those out i um, mean be like very clinically rigorous in 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 doing that we're a startup we're new you know there have been companies in this space for decades right like that's who we're that's who we're who we're, uh, who we're up against so we don't take that lightly um you know but in in the la area that I've mentioned that we are live, you know, we get referrals from PCPs, we get referrals from SNFs, we get referrals from payers. Um, you know, we are now looking to contract with, you know, managed Medicaid plans with ACO reach entities. So we are open for business. Um, and if there are folks who are very interested by what we're doing, you know, you can hop on our website and, and, and hear about us. Um, but, uh, the, yeah, so that, that onus is, is, is on us to prove that
0: out. No, that's really cool. It's really amazing. And, um, you know, as we get close to the hour here, I, I guess the the last thing I want to ask you about is, and you've kind of been touching on this a lot, is you know, where where we're kind of looking in the future, both you know for your for guaranteed and then kind of just in general. I know you you kind of have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the in the health tech world and things. I guess what do you, what are your thoughts on, you know, especially with you know you've touched on a number of I think key things that are kind of happening in healthcare right now, the staffing shortage, you know, the the payment, you know, how things are paid for, you know, how one kind of Inefficiency is another person's opportunity—that kind of thing. I guess as much as you can. I guess what do you what do you see in the next like five to ten years, like as kind of those major areas for not only to innovate but also really make a difference, like really improve, you know, where, where we can go with healthcare.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think there's like two tailwinds that are happening right now. So I think the first thing is continued consolidation. You know, industry wins. What what that means is unless the government or the FTC steps in, the big the big will get bigger. Um, so we're looking at the biggest payviders, the biggest health systems and hospitals. They will continue to acquire assets. That will not slow down. And what that means for innovation is unclear. Um, what that means for patient and provider experience is unclear. But you know, if I'm to look into my crystal ball, that is one thing I am sure of, right? If they have margin, they will continue to acquire they will continue to grow, right? Um, So that's neither good nor bad, that is just a reality that will continue, right? And then I think the other tailwind at the same time though is I think the capital that's coming into healthcare now is more diverse than ever before. You have corporate venture capital, you obviously have institutional venture capital, you have angel investors, payers have venture arms, health systems have venture arms, Um, you have individuals who are investing, um, you have clinicians who are active angel investors, you have private equity, again, it's neither good nor bad, but there's a lot of private equity that's now moving into healthcare and health tech. So there's a lot of money (laughs) and a lot of money means we're going to see a lot of stuff happen. And some of it's going to be good. Some of it's going to be bad. And a lot of it is just probably just going to be very average, but we're going to see a lot happen. I think a lot that's going to happen Again, will be definitely in specialty care. I think when we look at neurology, cardiology, orthopedics, gastroenterology, we will see software. We will see a lot of tech-enabled services. You know, surgery, for example, like surgery is a big money maker right now in healthcare and health tech. But a lot of the the surgical platforms that they use are very old. Startups can come up, promising that hey, we will make that process more efficient. We'll we'll help you capture revenue. We'll we'll help you capture, you know, so like that's the idea. So like there's a lot of specialty care innovation that's really hot right now. Um, I think what will continue to be hot is at-home care or hybrid care, really, where again, I think the pandemic showed us like there was a telemedicine for XYZ company. I think telemedicine is a a tool. It is a commodity, (laughs) right? It has become commoditized, you know, That is 2021, that is not 2030, right? I think 2030 will be understanding what the next tool will be, how we can incorporate that tool into kind of newer types of care models, right? And I think these newer types of care models will stitch together different care modalities, right? So I can do a video visit, I can send someone into the home, I can now have chat GPT doing X, Y, and Z. Cool, can I actually stitch all of those together for a very specific high cost, high needs patient population? That is where, if I had to guess, we will see a future startup funded next year. Because I think that's that's the future. Um, I'm very bullish on generative AI and large language models. We are very early, but when people like Bill Gates are saying this is the most transformational technology since the creation of the internet, I'm paying attention. <laughs> and I think all of us need to be paying attention um, because we're very, very early. Um, but there are a ton of incredible entrepreneurs who are building SaaS platforms. They're building incredible search engines for every kind of clinical space that we can imagine, which is really exciting. Um, but we'll see what's real. We'll see what, what works. You know, We'll see what's good. We'll see what's bad. Um, but that I am very, very excited about. And I think when we talk about AI, it's the first thing that, again, all the, the stakeholders are really like buying and paying attention to. Um, you know, We've gone through this AI hype cycle many, 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 many times. Um, so again, it's not really about generative AI, it's about, hey, does this help me hire clinicians? Does this help me retain them? Does this help me make their jobs better? Um, again, like what business use case is that going to, ha- it's either gonna help me make more money, help me decrease my costs. <laughs> Right, and I think on the cost side, it will be really. It, it is it going to help me do prior auth? Is it going to help me do coding and billing, revenue cycle management, right? Like all the really sticky problems in health tech and healthcare right now. That is where I see a lot of potential for these technologies.
0: No, that's really cool. That's a that's a uh, it's it's really exciting. I I know a lot of people are really frustrated with healthcare now, but I think, you know, I think you're painting up a, a picture of that that is you know I think very exciting and very ripe for innovation for people to make a difference. But Rihanna, I really appreciate you taking time on your very busy schedule to be on the podcast. The last thing I want to do is just give you a chance. To, you know, I guess plug where you know people can find you, reach out, connect where people can find out more yeah. about Guaranteed, and we'll, we'll certainly yeah. link all that stuff as well. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, so people can go to GuaranteedHospice.com. Um,
1: again, we service five counties in the LA region: LA County, Orange County, most particularly. Um, People can follow me on on LinkedIn. People can also follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm at rmfnyc1. Um, can shoot me a friend request on LinkedIn, uh, Rihan Faruqi. I'm sure you'll you'll link it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm you know active here in New York. Um, folks, always happy to slide into my DMs. I'm, I'm really open to, to to talking to folks online
0: or in person. So very much up for that. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.